A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us for a Clash of the Titans edition of the program, including TikTok versus Congress. Call it the ultimate TikTok challenge. The CEO of the Chinese social media app, Shouzhou, will be testifying on Capitol Hill next hour. We'll hear from one of the lawmakers set to grill him. Plus, Macron versus the multitude. The protests continue this time. It's the nation's biggest unions rebelling in the first nationwide demonstration since deeply unpopular pension reforms were made law. We are live in Paris for the latest on that. And central bankers versus inflation and financial contagion. The UK, Norway, Switzerland and the Philippines all raising interest rates today following the Federal Reserve's quarter of a percent hike on Wednesday. Bankers betting, it seems, that they can do it all, steady the banking boats and also tackle their high pricing predicament, inflation. I tell you what it does mean. It means choppy waters. U.S. futures are heading higher after Wednesday's, Wednesday's wave of weakness in stressed regional banks and bigger banks too. But as you can see, Europe at this moment is a touch lower. No surprises from Fed Chair Jay Powell meeting market expectations with that quarter of a percentage point hike. But he also changed the tone on what comes next. Powell very clear about what remains unclear, and it's plenty, and that's to what extent the recent bank failures and turbulence will now weigh on future growth. He suggests banks may now be less willing to lend. And we're talking all banks. Let's be clear, not just the weakened ones. They all know that more regulation is likely coming. They have to be careful, more careful with the deposits that they've got. And also because borrowing money, if they don't use those deposits, costs more for them too. The result, they lend less. How much less could make the difference between perhaps one more hike from the Fed and no more hikes. Then came the Janet versus Jay moment when they were literally speaking at exactly the same time and on a critically important topic for current confidence in banks. Just listen to this. These actions demonstrate that all depositors' savings and the banking system are safe. I understand. I have and that- not considered or discussed anything having to do with blanket um, insur- insurance or guarantees of Two all deposits. Eek. Eek. Okay, so that was Jay Powell reinforcing the implicit assumption that all deposits are protected. Then you had Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen giving an explicit pushback that there's actually no discussion of a blanket deposit protection likely to come. And what happened? Well, bank stocks fell. Look, my view is nothing changed in the last 24 hours. Janet also said that the protections will be done on a case-by-case basis, as we've already seen, let's be clear. But I think the reaction to this across financial markets shows the fear of deposit outflows is still pretty palpable. We'll discuss all of this later on in the show. For now, we focus on TikTok. And in the next hour, the CEO of TikTok is expected to begin giving testimony on Capitol Hill in Washington. He'll tell lawmakers that the Chinese-owned app, which claims to have 150 million U.S. users, is not a national security threat and should not be banned. Vanessa Yurkevich has all the details. 
TikTok, the wildly popular social media sensation, has taken America by storm, with nearly half of all Americans creating, uploading, and watching videos. But now the company finds itself in the crosshairs of a political debate. Hi, everyone. It's Sho here. I'm the CEO of TikTok. CEO Sho Chu announcing his arrival in D.C. on TikTok as he gears up to face lawmakers Thursday in a high-stakes hearing amid threats from the White House to ban the app in the U.S. unless TikTok's Chinese parent company ByteDance sells their stake. This is quite literally an existential issue for TikTok. This is life or death. Chu will be grilled on TikTok's perceived threat to U.S. national security. Legislators have raised concerns over the Chinese government's ability to use TikTok to spy on Americans and collect their personal data. The app is already banned on federal devices, and nearly half of all states have banned it on state-owned devices. In so many instances, it just appears that China is not our friend. Now they've got this enormously popular and powerful application that has basically captivated the the minds of, of the next generation of Americans. What are they doing with that information? But Chu has been insistent. China has no influence over the app and its 150 million U.S. users. The Chinese government has actually never asked us for U.S. user data. And we've said this on the record, that even if we were asked for that, we will not provide that. But top U.S. intelligence officials believe otherwise. This is a tool that is ultimately within the control of the Chinese government. And it, to me, it screams out with national security concerns. But there is no public evidence this is happening. The government has not provided uh, a smoking gun, but maybe the government doesn't need to provide a smoking gun. It's about that possibility. Why the hysteria and the panic Representative Jamal Bowman hosting TikTok creators at the Capitol just hours before the hearing. It poses about the same threat that companies like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Twitter pose. So let's not marginalize and target TikTok. The Trump administration tried and failed to ban TikTok in 2020. Several courts ruled it violated the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, a law the Biden administration is also up against. Does it have any new legal authorities or powers to actually do it? No. And so this is why we come back to we're likely to get a restriction on TikTok based on what the executive branch can do right now. A complete ban, practically speaking, is unlikely at this point. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's bring in CDA, CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher. Sarah, great to have you on the show. Um, U.S. Congress has proved uh, spectacularly incapable of tackling its own big social media firms like uh, YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. What is today really about? What do they want to achieve? And if it's about um, courting public opinion, um, they've got a battle on their hands. Yeah, they do. You know, it was very politically advantageous, especially for Republicans to take a tough stance on China. But the difference being when you're taking a a tough stance on companies like Huawei that most consumers don't have a direct relationship with, it's very different than when you're taking a tough stance on an app like TikTok that's used by 150 million Americans monthly. I think what you're going to see today is they want to get to the bottom of reports that TikTok has been, you know, using its app to spy on Americans. Of course, there was reports out last week that the DOJ is investigating TikTok for spying on journalists. There's also been reports that TikTok has leveraged the algorithm from China 
in its U.S. app in ways that we wouldn't necessarily approve of here. For example, there was a 2019 report from The Guardian that TikTok was filtering out hashtags around Tiananmen Square. They're going to want to probe into some of those reports, get an understanding of whether or not this app really does have the best interests of U.S. users. But to the point of the clip that we heard earlier, it's still an uphill battle. You know, the administration has not pointed to one single major national security threat in trying to potentially ban this app. That's why I think we reported this at Axios this morning. Their posture is more, we don't necessarily want to ban the app, but we would like for it to be sold to a U.S. company. Yeah, but of course, China has to sign off on that. And the sort of noises, at least from that side, is perhaps a, a ban is, um, is easier for them too. Um, do you think they actually do something on this, Sarah? Because one could argue, and I acknowledge all the risks and the concerns about misinformation and manipulation of data, but one could argue China can go buy the data from a, a data broker if they want to get access to it. Um, is this not just a political football for the tensions with China and actually trying to cover the fact that they simply haven't been able to tackle domestic or international social media companies? Well, to your first question on whether or not I think something happens, I think we're going to be in limbo for a long time. And yeah. here's why. One, we need approvals here from the courts to make sure that any action by the White House actually can be upheld with law. Two, to your point, the Chinese government has indicated that they don't want this to be sold. They passed an export law in 2020 that sort of protects their IP. And so they don't want, in particular, the algorithm to be sold to a U.S. company. And then the big elephant in the room is who's going to buy it? I mean, TikTok was valued at like 30 billion ish dollars in 2020, according to some reports. You know, the markets are not as good as now as they were then, but it's a lot bigger of an app. It has bigger ad revenue. You know, the buyers at the time, Microsoft is now has its hands tied with Activision. I have not heard that Walmart is interested. Oracle is its national security partner, and they're actually not getting clobbered on Wall Street, so they could be a logical buyer. But it's not like you're talking about a billion-dollar company. So finding a buyer is going to be really challenging, and it's not clear to me whether or not the government's okay with an IPO instead. So because of all of those reasons, I think we're going to be in limbo on this issue for a long time. We're going to continue to be talking about it in months from now, and I don't think it'll be outright banned then. Yeah, I was about to say, like with all of these things and with other social media companies, Sarah, you and I will chat again in five years and see where we are. Yeah. Sarah Fisher, <laughs> thank you so much for that. Yes, and of thank course, you. this will be closely watched by officials in China, as we were just discussing. Mark Stewart joins us on that, Mark. What's the view from the Chinese side? What are you hearing? Hi, Julia, no surprise, but the response from Beijing has been very pointed. Just days ago, we heard from a government spokesperson who said that the U.S. is clearly trying to overstep its reach using national security almost as an excuse to hobble and plunder foreign companies. At a time when relations between the U.S. and China are already very turbulent, as we have seen in the past, if China doesn't like something, it has this mentality or this, 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 this view that if you hurt us, we'll hurt you back. Could this perhaps lead to retaliation by China? Will China say to the U.S., well, if you're going to ban TikTok, we're going to ban some of American apps on Chinese soil? That's one conversation I had from an analyst today. But then again, Julia, as you were talking with Sarah and as we've discussed throughout the morning, even if 
there is a company to buy TikTok, and even if that money is raised, and even if it's a deal that the CEO wants, the Chinese government could say, look, the parameters of all of this, this ability for us to control the data, the analytics, for us to keep all of that, it's far too valuable. So the Chinese government could perhaps even stop a sale. Those are some of the views we're hearing tonight from Beijing. Yeah, fascinating to see, but obviously it requires Congress to act first, and we know what I think of that. Mark Stewart, thank you so much for that. And later in the show, we'll hear the view of one of the lawmakers involved in that hearing in around 20 minutes' time. For now, an uncertain outlook for TikTok and for the U.S. economy as well. Fed Chair Jay Powell saying at his press conference Wednesday that global banking stress could have a profound impact on U.S. lending, and that then could have a knock-on impact to future interest rate policy. Rahel Solomon joins us now. There is a lot to unpack. And actually, the interest rate rise is um, sort of the least of it. Rahel, (laughs) what did you make of what he had to say? Well, I think it's interesting, Julia, right? Because in terms of the interest rate decision, we got exactly what we were expecting. But what we also got was this acknowledgement that, hey, we know this banking instability that we are in the midst of essentially will create a tightening in credit conditions, which you and I have talked about, essentially acknowledging that that is the equivalent of a rate hike. And so reading between the lines here, you have Jay Powell, the chairman, saying, we get it. We've done a lot, and we can show you all of the rate increases over the last rate hiking cycle, 475 basis points, or 4.75% over a year's period. And so there is the lag of that, but there is also this tightening that we are likely to see from these banks and the impact that that will have, the knock-on impact. Uh, Jay Powell essentially saying that credit tightening is expected, but here's the thing, Julia, we it's unclear how long and it's unclear how much. And so a sense of... We get it. We've done a lot. Let's wait and see how much of this will essentially do the work for us in terms of cooling demand. And it really is sort of finger in the wind and watching the data uh, first and foremost. Rahel, great to have you with us. Thank you. Rahel Solomon there. Not the only central bank taking action. The Bank of England is also following in the U.S. central bank's footsteps, raising U.K. interest rates by a quarter of one percent, too. The move comes a day after U.K. inflation data showed inflation rising unexpectedly in February to 10.4 percent. The pace of rising prices still stubbornly high. Anna Stewart joins me now. I barely managed to get through all those S's. Take it from me. (laughs) A quarter of a percentage point rate hike and inflation says, as we said in the last hour, there's simply no choice. Yeah, and this also follows the ECB raising rates last week, the Fed yesterday, the Swiss National Bank this morning. So it felt like it was baked in, not least with that inflation report that we got out yesterday, which definitely surprised everyone and not in a good way. 10.4% for February, which means inflation is actually increasing in the UK when it's declining everywhere else. Hopefully that is temporary. It looks like very much related to uh, food issues, largely fruit and vegetable, uh, Julia. Uh, Interestingly, economic outlook, the budget that was announced by the Chancellor last week, this was the first formal budget the UK has had um, for a year. That says it'll add 0.3% to GDP over the coming years. Also, GDP expected to come in slightly higher for the second quarter of this year versus what was expected to be a decline. Of course, lots of attention on what will happen going forwards with rates. No change to the language like we've seen from other other central banks like the uh, ECB and the Fed. However, I would say they're saying that they will obviously stick to the inflation target and that will guide uh, their decisions going forwards. But the market implied path is for a peak at 4.5% in August. So that does suggest perhaps it's not over yet. Julia? 
Yeah, certainly not over yet. I concur. You know what also caught my attention? In addition to the chocolate hobnob biscuits that were in one of those baskets, which I have to admit <laughs> that I, um, I sincerely miss, um, was an admission from the governor of the Bank of England that they'd actually spoken to the San Francisco Fed, which oversees Silicon Valley Bank, 18 months to two years ago to warn about climate risk and concentration risk. What more did they have to say about that? Because when you've got one set of central banks or regulators warning another country or region about those, um, big questions, I think, need to be asked. You have a BDI. This was really interesting. A letter from the governor of the Bank of England uh, to Parliament answering a whole load of questions largely about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank UK, the UK subsidiary, um, and all of the issues around banking. And essentially, you know, this was an opportunity for the governor to say, hey, the UK banking sector is resilient. But he had lots of pointed remarks about the fact that SVP, Silicon Valley Bank, did have to have a completely separate UK subsidiary to operate here because of capital and liquidity requirements. And as you said, he pointed out that over the last 18 to 24 months, the Bank of England was aware, they say, of a concentration risk with loans and deposits from a concentrated client base in the innovation sector. And they, they flagged this not only to the bank, but also to the San Francisco Federal Reserve. Also, a really interesting bit, and I'm not sure whether we have it, was just where uh, Andrew Bailey also had some thoughts on the U.S. response to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the contagion impact, particularly in concern with the guarantee for deposits. And he has this to say, a blanket guarantee of all depositors is not costless. It reduces the risk sensitivity of a bank's funding, could result in moral hazard, and any costs would ultimately need to be borne by the taxpayer. And I just slightly wonder, is he also sending letters to the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, because of course yesterday she ruled out mm. a sort of big extension of the deposit guarantee. Uh, and that felt like a bit of a walk back from comments we had from her only a few days ago, I think earlier this week. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It was, it was in response to a question, actually, um, from um, one of the lawmakers asking about whether Congress would, would look at this. And she was immediately you know, defensive and said, look, it's not even being discussed, which I think was an important point, but she did go back and say, look, case by case basis, which is which is what we've seen. But yeah, to his point, they know it's not costless, Anna, and they want to avoid that explicit guarantee at all costs. If you can keep it implicit, do it. Um, thank you so much for that. Sharp points as ever. Thank you. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. The Federal Reserve not letting up on its mission to curb inflation, even amid stresses in the banking sector. It raised interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point on Wednesday, in line with many forecasts. In the, that's the ninth rate hike in the last nine meetings. But the Fed chair signaled the end of that succession of rate increases is now in sight. We believe, however, that events in the banking system over the past two weeks are likely to result in tighter credit conditions for households and businesses, which would in turn affect economic outcomes. It is too soon to determine the extent of these effects, and therefore too soon to tell how monetary policy should respond. As a result, we no longer state that we anticipate that ongoing rate increases will be appropriate to quell inflation. Instead, we now anticipate that some additional policy affirming may be appropriate. 
Joining us now, Nathan Sheets, Global Chief Economist for Citigroup. He also worked at the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. for 18 years. Nathan, welcome to the show. No one better, I think, to discuss this moment with. First question, the end may be in sight of rate hikes. Have they finished? What do you think? Well, uh, Jay Powell and his colleagues really are walking a tightrope here. Mm trying to balance their ongoing concern about inflation, which uh, which remains hot, uh, against these emergent financial stability and banking sector risks. And uh, my feeling is that, uh, you know, from here, it's going to be touch and go in terms of further rate hikes. And really, the key question is how long lived are the stresses that we're seeing in the financial sector? If they abate relatively quickly, as would be our baseline expectation, say over the next six or eight weeks, then I'd say, yeah, we'll probably see a few more rate hikes. On the other hand, uh, if they're longer lived or the effects, say through a credit crunch, uh, end up being more durable, then you know this this in principle, this might be it for 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 Jay Powell in this episode. As he alluded to, what comes next? is determined by the behavior of banks and not just the six or seven banks, regional banks that we've seen extreme stresses or failures in, but but all of these banks now who one could argue have had a shot across the bows. More regulation is coming, more questions over your lending practices and who you're lending to. The natural assumption surely is for, for many of these banks, they're now more cautious about who they lend to, how they lend and if they're not using deposits, where they get that money from, which got more expensive in the past two weeks. I mean, there are plenty of unknowns, but I think it's fair to say lending standards will tighten across all of these banks. I think uh, a bottom line for these institutions uh, and maybe markets uh, more broadly is uh, the world uh, is looking pretty risky at the moment. And what do you do in that environment? You pull back from risk taking. And I think that that means uh, uh, lending standards, as you say, are likely to rise. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, corresponding to that, spreads in markets also, uh, also increase. And uh, credit becomes more scarce to the extent that that process uh, proceeds. That will be a significant headwind. Uh, the Fed flagged that yesterday, including in its statement. Uh, we just don't know. We, we, we know the sign that it's going to be it's going to be negative for for growth. We just don't yet know how severe uh, those uh, effects will ultimately prove to be. Yeah, I think he was very clear about how unclear things are and it just puts <laughs> them in data watching exactly. mode. <laughs> yes, um, he was talking at the same time as as Janet Yellen. And I wanted to get your opinion on this because, as I've already discussed on the show, and, and the little comment that she made about not even discussing a blanket guarantee for all deposits, I think, was taken out of context. But the immediate reaction in those regional stocks in the United States and bigger banking stocks, I think, was an important signal that I think investors in particular were getting more comfortable with this idea of an implicit backstop to deposits if banks get into trouble. But the idea that there's never going to be an explicit backstop um, added to some of the nervousness. 
Nathan, what's your take on this? Is that justified? Do we just have to get over this idea that there isn't a need, perhaps, for a blanket protection promise? I, I agree with your interpretation. I think Janet Yellen was taken out of context. I think she was saying that Treasury, on its own authority, does not have the capacity to provide a blanket guarantee for the entire uh, system. And to do something like that, even temporarily, would require uh, support and action uh, from Congress. Uh, that said, uh, was Janet Yellen saying that in certain instances, uh, as institutions face stress, that there may not be some further interventions and support uh, for liabilities and deposit holders beyond that 250000 threshold? I think that that remains very much on the table. And then I also agree with your broader point that at this stage, it really doesn't look like it's necessary, that the stresses have been concentrated in a handful of medium-sized banks, banks with assets of, 200, of $100 billion to $250 billion. The large banks still look strong, and for all intents and purposes at this moment, the smaller banks, uh, we haven't seen any stresses yet. And even in those mid-sized banks, it's only a handful. This is not yet a systemic challenge that requires uh, a full blanket guarantee of the entire system. I, I'm in danger of famous last words criticism here, but you were at the Fed during the financial crisis. So you have the experience of both what we're seeing today, but also what we saw then. Um, it's perhaps the bigger point um, and the bigger takeaway, actually, that the relative resilience of the financial system to an extraordinarily swift uh, and, and impactful set of rate hikes um, and actually in a resilient U.S. economy, too, in the face of that as well. I think resilience is a key word. Uh, I think, as you emphasize, the underlying economic resilience of uh, the U.S. and frankly, the global economy over the last several years uh, has been extraordinary. And I think uh, we are also reaping uh, benefits from a decade-long effort to strengthen the banking system. The banks now have more capital than they had 10 or 15 years ago. The quality of regulation is much stronger. And I think that that does leave much of the banking system in a better place. Now, are we also seeing maybe some places where it could be further enhanced? Absolutely. And I think that uh, in, in coming months, we're likely to see the Fed and Congress reflect on uh, this episode and uh, make some modifications in uh, some of the features of regulation, particularly for some of those mid-sized banks. Yeah, and, and I think that's um, virtually a given now. Um, one of the things that has been discussed on this show this week, and it was um, Jason Furman, former um, sort of advisor to, to President Obama. He said that actually the biggest danger here is to encourage the rate cuts that are now being priced in by investors. Um, and Jay Powell sort of hinted to that too and said, look, we're not talking about rate cuts. In your mind, Nathan, barring some unforeseen black swan event, can we and should we be ruling out a rate cut this year? Yesterday in the press conference, I think Jay Powell emphasized enormous uncertainties 
about a broad swath of issues. But there was one point in which he was absolutely mm. crystal clear. <laughs> and it was when he was asked about rate cuts going forward. And he was categorical that if the forecast evolves anywhere close to what they're expecting, we shouldn't be uh, uh, projecting and penciling in rate cuts for uh, 2023. And you agree. Uh, you know, we can debate how many more hikes, but cuts is, I think, in the Fed's thinking, at least at this stage, is a bridge too far. Yeah, cuts a fairy tale, I think, at least as far as we're concerned today. Nathan, great to chat to you. Nathan Sheets, Global Chief Economist for Citigroup there. Great to get your thoughts. Welcome back to live pictures of Washington, D.C., where in around half an hour's time, the CEO of TikTok will be giving testimony to lawmakers amid fears that the app could be used to spy on American citizens or even manipulate them with disinformation. Earlier today, I spoke to House Democratic Representative Debbie Dingell, and I pointed out that the CEO is going to say, look, he's never given data to China and he never will. The question is, will she believe him? not sure to be perfectly frank uh i think we all of us i don't care if you're republican or democrat are very concerned about the kind of data that china has through accessing tiktok and i have met with the ceo of tiktok i'm clearly looking forward to this hearing this morning and hearing him answer questions but I, I think that we've got a real problem, period, with privacy in this country and around the world through all of these social media apps. And I have real concern over how much data China already has on Americans through the TikTok app and, quite frankly, could have had access through other apps as well. I think there's a belief that Chinese companies are and can be private, but when it comes to national security, they become an, an arm effectively of, of the Chinese government. And to your point, that means they can weaponize um, American data. They can use algorithms to, to push in disinformation. Um, they can ban anti-Chinese content. I mean, these are all good reasons for a ban. Would you agree? I, I think that there's certainly causes that we need to look at. I think they become national security issues. And let's be very clear. Uh, I'm been around a while. I'm seasoned. I was in business for 30 years within the auto industry, uh, be almost uh, 35, uh, before I uh, ran for Congress. And I know what it's like to do business in China. And an American company is not allowed to do business in China without having a Chinese partner. So your business isn't separate over there. That's just a reality when I'm answering that question. And it's been very interesting just the last couple of weeks while I was home, we were out um, for almost 12 days, uh, asking young children. I mean, I was, here's an anecdotal story. The first time I heard the words, what do you think about Project Willow, was from a second grader. Now, Project Willow is the drilling uh, project in Alaska, but I, if you ask most adults, they talk about it as drilling in Alaska. But over the period of the last 12 days, I probably have been asked by 10 or 12 young people aging from the second grader who first asked it to high schoolers what I think of Project Willow. 
and they and it's from TikTok. They've heard about it from TikTok, and they very clearly have certain perspectives on it. Now, I'm I'm very encouraged that such that young people are concerned about our environment are communicating it, but when you talk to them, you also see that they're getting other uh, very um, interesting pieces of information, some of which could be called misinformation. And it is very clear the impact that these social media apps are having on our young children. I mean, there's, there's so many comments I could make there. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, uh, and I totally accept the point about the concerns about what content is doing to young people and beyond, but you also have a situation where I think by a margin of two to one, young people and teenagers are saying they want to keep this app. They think you're, you're going down the wrong path with this and they, and they want to keep it. And the other point I think to make is, would a ban even be constitutional at this, right? Would it not be, in some quarters, considered un-American and not allowing well, Americans it, to have freedom of, freedom of expression? I do believe we've got to protect our freedom of speech, which is why I've been very careful to study this issue, to spend the time. But it is interesting. Yesterday, I had a group of high school students that were uh, visiting the Capitol. And I ended up having a 20-minute discussion with them about TikTok. And they were a very divided group about what they thought should happen with TikTok. Uh, some of them are very aware that they're being shown content that they believe is trying to color their opinion of things, how they think about things. They're not sure that they're seeing all kinds of diff different. One young man said, I'm not sure I'm seeing all the different things I have. I'm not sure that they're not trying to make me think a certain way. I found that interesting. Uh, there was also a young man that was for sure did not want to have TikTok banned. But I do believe that we need to become much more aware of our national security. I think young people have no idea of the amount of privacy that we have just simply given away about ourselves, how much data is being collected on every individual, and it is a national security issue. And I think we're entering new times up on the, our, our nation's security, but I know it's one of my major responsibilities as a policy maker to protect this country. I think the counter to this would be that um, China could buy data if it wanted to from um, from data brokers. But I wonder whether TikTok has just become a, a sort of political football in a sense with the tensions between the United States and China. And we could have substituted the word TikTok for uh, Facebook or, or Twitter or YouTube. And actually, this simply represents a failure by Congress to do anything to restrain these social media giants, whether they're international or domestic. Is that fair criticism? I think that is fair criticism. Yeah. Europe has passed privacy legislation. You know, the fact of the matter is the cat's out of the bag. Uh, we have given away so much data about ourselves. I won't even, I mean, to this point, I won't join CLEAR because I don't want them having that kind of biometric information about me. I, uh, there are certain things that I still do to try to protect my uh, privacy because I just don't want people knowing I, I, you know, it's a safety issue when people can track where you are. But our young kids don't even realize how much information is being collected on them, their patterns, their behavior, what people are learning about them that is going to follow them their whole life. Yeah. And again, I would say it's Congress's uh, job to do a better job of informing Correct. them and restraining 
restraining these companies. Um, we shall see what today brings. Um, Representative, I just want to ask you, based on what we've seen over the past couple of weeks, what kind of conversations, because I'm sure you're having them with, with banks in um, your localities, with, with individuals perhaps that are concerned about, about the safety of the banks and, and how they're going to behave going forward. And I'm talking specifically about potential greater restrictions on lending and perhaps not giving the cash so willingly that they were to individuals and businesses that want it. How worried are you? So I've talked to many of my banks and I do believe that we've got to reassure uh, consumers worldwide, customers, that we have a strong banking system that's sound and it's not in danger of collapse. That does mean that they need to be better regulated. You know, my husband, actually it was my father-in-law that helped initially pass something called Glass-Steagall, which was repealed and a a phrase that has become well known around the world is that you will create a bank too big to fail. Those were the words of my husband when we repealed Glass-Steagall. I'm very concerned about the banks, the banks' behaviors, the kind of regulations that we are putting on them. We have got to assure customers and consumers that our banks are sound, our financial system sound. That's going to require tighter regulation and making sure we're doing what we need to do to keep banks sound. That is more important than people who can't afford credit getting credit they shouldn't be getting and aren't going to be able to meet. Would you be in favor of a, a raising of the FDIC insurance limit above $250,000 if necessary, simply to ensure the confidence in the system that you're talking about, that every depositor of all shape and size is protected? I think that we have to look at that number. I don't think that we can insure unlimited amounts of money. Uh, we, that, that, um, that cap was set some time ago, so mm. it may require a raising of that cap. But I am not someone that's against regulation of banks because I think it's the backbone of our economy and it requires confidence and it requires serious, strong management. Yeah, these things can't keep going wrong. That's that's part of the problem that we have right now is conflicts in some of the businesses the banks are doing. They want to get interest from loaning money. So are we loaning money to people that we shouldn't be? How are we making sure that depositors who have money in that bank know that their money is going to be safe and uh, the banks backed up the assets that they need to protect those deposits? Yeah, and they don't have to be an equity analyst to be able to understand what's going on at the bank. They should just be able to... um believe that those those deposits are safe. Um, I tell you what, this conversation proves you're going to have a, a busy few months, certainly, um, if not more. Uh, Representative, thank you for your time. Great to chat to you. Now, from the testimony of the TikTok CEO to US stocks putting on a better show. Take a look. We are firmer after Wednesday's 1.5% drop. That was, I think, a knee-jerk response, actually, to comments from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, 
who said she's not discussed blanket protection for U.S. bank deposits above $250,000. I think investors and us have more context, as we've already talked about on the show, and regional banks are bouncing back as a result, but it does underscore the ongoing nervousness. Now, from regional banks to central banks, a global rate hike tidal wave today, including a quarter of a point rise from the Bank of England, its 11th straight move. The Swiss central bank, meanwhile, also boldly hiking by half a percentage point. Despite all the weekend drama where UBS ended up buying Credit Suisse, that merger, by the way, created a bank some twice the size of the Swiss economy. Maybe they should be setting interest rates instead of the central bank. Hmm. Anyway, coming up here on First Move. Fresh protests across France over pension reform. Our live report from Paris, next. Welcome back to First Move and to new pension-tied protests across France. Powerful workers' unions staging their first nationwide strike since the government pushed through pension reform without a vote in Parliament and thereby raising the retirement age to 64. Melissa Bell joins us live from Paris. Melissa, and those protesters, I think, only inflamed by Emmanuel Macron, the president's decision and comments this week to say, look, I'm not changing my mind. Uh, that's right. I think they have really uh, further fanned the fuel uh, of the anger that you can see uh, expressed here today. Let me just show you, uh, Julia, the crowds as they prepare to march. We're just getting our first hint of the smell of tear gas. And uh, this is something we'd really expected. First of all, that the numbers on the streets of Paris and other French cities would be pretty big today, given the spontaneous protests we've seen these last few days. Uh, given the determination of the unions so united on this issue to make their anger plain, especially, as you suggest, after the words of Emmanuel Macron, who spoke not only to his determination to see this reform through, so the age uh, of retirement in France being raised from 62 to 64 by the end of the year, uh, but also speaking uh, to the unrest that we've seen and saying that no flare-ups will be tolerated, uh, they will crack down on them and ensure that French life goes back to normal as quickly as it can, despite the attempts of some to block it. It isn't just the people, the numbers that you'll see on the streets here today, Julia. It is, of course, those blockages that we're seeing, again, at petrol refineries, oil depots. Uh, and these are having, of course, an impact already in petrol stations with queues beginning to form after these many weeks of protests. Here in Paris, you'll also see the signs of that discontent uh, in the shape of the garbage that's still piled high on so many of the French capitalist streets. And then there is, of course, the amount of people that they'll manage to get out today. Their aim really is, Julia, uh, even though the government said it's going to push this through, even though there's now gone through without a vote and that we expect it to become law, that somehow by making life as difficult as they can for the government, they can force it back to the negotiating table. What we're likely to hear by the end of today uh, is not just the figures out on the streets, but what the next day of action will be, both in terms of protests and of strikes, Julia. Yeah, determined to continue to push this. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that. All right, still to come on First Move, a prince in Poland, a raw show of support for displaced Ukrainians and troops. All the details next. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to First Move. Prince William out and about on the second day of his surprise visit to Poland. Earlier, he met with the Polish president and spoke of the need to continue offering support to the people of Ukraine. He laid a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier, a monument to Polish soldiers who have died in conflict. The prince also spoke with young Ukrainians who talked about their experience of resettling in Poland after fleeing the war in their own country. Max Foster joins us now. Max, an important show of support and solidarity, but also underscoring that the royal family are prepared really to take a stance and, and then for it to be seen on the war in Ukraine. Yeah, so this trip is about Ukraine, but it's in Poland and it's about how Poland has been supporting Ukraine. Uh, he's here the first time on a big foreign tour as Prince of Wales and it's interesting to see how that elevated title is something that he's going to clearly use in some sort of global statesman type role uh, defending and promoting Western values of freedom and democracy because that's what he's been doing throughout this two days. He was here at this food hall to meet those young Ukrainians who came over here I spoke to a couple of them afterwards and they were relaying what it was like for them to leave their country. It's been amazing the support they've had here, but it's still very hard to get up every day knowing that their country is being uh, destroyed or part of the country is being destroyed at this point. And uh, William basically wants the world to continue hearing how Poland is supporting something like 1.5 million Ukrainians are here. He went to see the president, President Duda. That was all about thanking him and the people of Poland for that support. We talked yesterday about how he also thanked Polish troops for um, defending and uh, supporting those Ukrainian freedoms. So it's been interesting to see how he's used this role, used this trip to Poland, unafraid really, throwing himself into what is a, you know, a very politically sensitive story, of course, uh, in some parts of the world. But as far as the UK and Poland is concerned, he's basically saying we're right behind Ukraine and he's using his profile to get that message out. Yes, and we shall continue to watch his uh, ongoing meetings and visits there. Max, great to have you with us. Thank you. Max Foster. Okay, and that just about wraps up the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World is up next and I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.